Beyond the Beltway. This is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by criminal law professor Richard Kling from Chicago Kent College of Law. Judith Sherwin, an attorney and adjunct professor at Loyola University. And in our second hour, Ray Hanania, veteran reporter and media critic, and former New York City police officer, Rudy Hall. We are now welcoming you to our studios at WYND AM 560 in beautiful Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Nice to have you with us. Uh, in our first hour, we're going to be talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. We'll also talk a little bit about uh, Steve Bannon before we go off the air this evening. And also, uh, we have got great guests to talk about it. In studio, I have Judy Sherwin, who's a frequent guest on this program. She is right across the microphone from me. And joining us via Zoom is Richard Kling, who's an old friend of this program. He is one of, one of the leading uh, criminal law professors and uh, criminal defense attorneys in the city of Chicago. And Richard, I'm going to begin with you because uh, a lot of people have been following at least the last couple of weeks of the Kyle Rittenhouse case because it's been on television. But at this moment, when we're and we're less than you know 20 hours from when the trial will reopen tomorrow uh, up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, what what is going on in this trial right at this moment between the defense, the prosecution, and also uh, the judge? What are they all thinking about right now? Well, the final issue that they have to resolve is the issue of instruction. The judge will give the jury legal instructions, and the instructions are instructions that are submitted to the judge by the lawyers for both sides. And then they hassle them out, and the judge will decide what the instructions are. And those are the things that the jury has to listen to to decide whether or not the, the state has proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt as to any or all the charges. So the issue of instructions is probably what's being discussed right now. What happens if the jury doesn't listen to the judge? Realistically, what the judge will tell the jury, and the judge tells them in every jury, and I've mm -hmm. tried over 500 murder cases, right. jury murder cases, yeah. is that here are the instructions. I, the judge, and the judge of the law. You, the jurors, are the judge of the facts. I can't tell you what the facts are. I will tell you what the law is, and I will ask that you apply the law to the facts. What the jury does in the jury room then is up to the jury, and nobody can second-guess them. Now, one of the issues is uh, whether or not they're going to include lesser charges. What are some of the other lesser charges, and what are some of the other lesser penalties uh, that Mr. Rittenhouse uh, might uh, uh, hear tomorrow or in the trial? Well, let's deal with probably the most the, the charge in the forefront of them all, and that's the Rosenblum murder or the Rosenblum killing. The jury will decide whether it's murder. Uh, and realistically, that's the young man who, at least some of the evidence says, was chasing Mr. Rittenhouse and may have hit him with a skateboard. Rittenhouse is charged with first-degree murder. Um, there are lesser offenses under first-degree murder. If, if, I, if somebody's going to hit me in the face, I certainly have a right to defend myself. If they're going to hit me with a skateboard, I may have a right to defend myself. The question is whether Mr. Rittenhouse had a right to blow the guy's head off. And so there is what's called a lesser uh, or imperfect uh, self-defense case. In other words, if mm -hmm. I use too much force, uh, I'm still guilty of an offense, but not necessarily guilty of the major offense. So Judy. realistically, the question whether Rittenhouse is going to accept the lesser included offense 
And if he does, then the judge will instruct the jury that they have to find whether or not uh, the state proved him guilty of first-degree murder and whether or not they proved him guilty of a lesser-included offense. Uh, Judith Sherwin joins me in studio. Judith, you obviously have been observing this case. Uh, from your perspective, uh, um, what, what's the big surprise that might happen in the next uh, week? Well, I, I don't know the big surprise that might happen in the next week. I mean, I don't see... Um, I don't see the judge taking this case from the jury. You know, I think it, I, I you know, and I, I do civil cases, all right? So at the end of civil cases, certainly after the, the plaintiff puts on their case, you make a motion for a directed verdict. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. What does that mean? That means, uh, Your Honor, I've proved my case beyond, a, a, you know, on the, by a preponderance of the evidence. Mm -hmm. It's not by a reasonable doubt. I have proven my case. There is no possible thing that the defense could say that could make you rule in their favor. Therefore, as a matter of law, you need to rule for me. Okay. And uh, sometimes that happens. Very rarely. Judges really don't like to do that. So they let the defense put on their case. And at the end of the case, a motion like that is made again. I don't know if a motion like that would be made again at the end of a criminal case. But I would think that even if it were made, the judge is likely not to give it. As far as the lesser included offenses are concerned, um, and, and this is a matter of criminal procedure, um, I don't know if he has to accept that if, mm -hmm. if the jury can just be instructed between the lawyers that this is this is something you could find as a lesser mm -hmm. included offense. But Mr. Kling, I'm sure, could tell us that. Yeah. Richard, any comment on that? And I, I can absolutely, and I can address that exactly. Uh, one of the issues that was reported, and I had that identical case with respect to a murder of my own several years ago, the defendant's charged with first-degree murder, as Mr. Rittenhouse is charged with first-degree murder. What the judge told the defendant yesterday or the day before, Ms. Dennis told Mr. Rittenhouse, look, here are the lesser-included offense instructions that the prosecution submitted. I want to let you know something. And that is lesser included offenses when they're submitted often lead a jury to a compromised verdict. So in other words, if the jury is only facing the issue of first degree murder or not guilty, um, there is more likelihood or at least greater possibility that the state has not proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. On the other hand, if there's a lesser included offense, it sort of gives the jury the ability to say, okay, this guy's guilty, but we're not gonna find him guilty of the most serious case. Now, let me tell you the drawback. And I had, as I said, that identical situation. The judge told the defendant it's his right to decide. The lawyers can give the advice, but when it's as serious as a lesser included instruction, it really is ultimately left to the defendant. In my case, it was ultimately left to the defendant. The defendant rejected a lesser included offense instruction, and the jury came back a half hour later with a guilty of first degree murder. And that's what Mr. Rittenhouse was told about yesterday. If he takes the lesser included instruction, uh, there's a, a greater probability he'll be found guilty of something right. as opposed to if he takes the all or nothing approach where it's all or nothing. So it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very dangerous situation. It's a very heavy situation for a defendant under those circumstances. Would, would he, would he be told by someone what the penalty would be for a lesser offense? Does he know that? Does the judge instruct yeah. him on that? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Both the, the lawyers ethically would have an obligation to let him know, and I'm sure they've discussed it extensively, and I'm sure the judge told them also, here are the possibilities. If you're found guilty of first-degree murder, here's the range of sentencing. If you're found guilty of a lesser-included offense, whether it's second-degree murder or involuntary manslaughter, here are the range of possibilities. And the, so the defendant can make an intelligent decision, a difficult but intelligent decision. Judy. Yeah, I mean, I understand that the, ju the judge is being very careful about this because um, there's been some stuff in the paper, and I'm sure discussion in the courtroom, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's been discussion in the courtroom that Mr. Rittenhouse has some PTSD as a result, mm -hmm. and the question is whether he's capable of making the decision, and the judge found that he was. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, how unusual that question from the judge was when we return. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8289. Thanks for joining us tonight. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, well, tell me what to do. Cannonball! <laughs> Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. 
Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm gonna take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back on uh, Beyond the Beltway with uh, Judith Sherwin this evening in studio and Richard Kling, uh, who is a criminal law professor from Chicago Kent College of Law, joining us via Zoom. Richard, how unusual was it when the judge asked Rittenhouse about his uh, mental state and his mental health and his ability to understand uh, the options before him? Well, realistically, in every criminal case, the judge has to make sure that when a defendant goes to trial, that the defendant is able to understand the nature of the proceedings against him and can cooperate with counsel. That That is uh, put into the ball of what's called fitness to stand trial. Mm-hmm. It's the same issue with respect mm-hmm. to fitness on instructions. And the judge, I think, was making absolutely sure that Rittenhouse knew exactly what he was doing and had the mental capacity. PTSD is really irrelevant. The only issue at that at that point was, do you understand what's going on? Can you cooperate with your lawyer? Nobody, every single witness who walks into a courtroom has some issue that, that may arise in the background. But the issue for the judge is, do you understand what's going on? Are you fully cognizant? Can you cooperate with your lawyer? Are you making the are you making this decision intelligently and of your own free will? And so, really, PTSD was sort of a, a softball, in my opinion for Rittenhouse, but it had nothing to do with whether or not he's capable of making the decision to accept the lesser included instruction. People who were watching the trial, they may say they're not sure, this is their opinion, they're not sure that the judge is aware of everything that's going on, and obviously uh, the media interpretation of uh, the judge has has not been, generally speaking, very positive. I want to take a moment and and play an excerpt of uh, uh, the judge and the prosecutor in this case uh, getting into a rather heated discussion over First Amendment rights. We're going to listen to that and uh, be right back with our conversation. I said I denied it, or I indicated a bias towards denial is what I did. Held it open with a bias towards denial. Why would you think that that made it okay for you without any advance notice to bring this matter before the jury? You are already, you were, I, I was a, astonished when you began your examination by commenting on the defendant's post-arrest silence. That's basic law. It's been basic law in this country for 40 years, 50 years. I have no idea why you would do something like that. And it gives, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So, Richard Kling, your reaction when you heard that? With all due respect to the judge, he's wrong. The, the issue is, if you are in a police station and police have given you your Miranda rights and you remain silent, positively a prosecutor cannot comment on your right to remain silent. The reason for that is, is you have a right to remain silent and it can't be perceived that you're hiding anything by exercising it. Having talks, I mean, the issue here was what I would call law school 101 impeachment. Rittenhouse in court, apparently for the first time, mentioned the issue of self-defense. He had talked to media. He had talked to many people having nothing to do with his Fifth Amendment right. 
If I talk to a newspaper as a defendant, my Fifth Amendment rights are not involved. They are only involved when you're talking to governmental authorities. And so I don't think the prosecutor was wrong for asking him those questions. He wanted to impeach him. Wait a second, Mr. Rittenhouse. You're coming in here now and saying you're relying on self-defense. You talk to all these people on the street. You gave tape-recorded conversations. You never mentioned self-defense to them, did you? That's classic Law School 101 impeachment of a prior and consistent statement. I think the prosecutor was correct to go into that area. I think the judge was wrong to come down on the prosecutor. Judith, your, your response to the same question, because the, the judges become uh, obviously an important part of this trial, as right. they always are. Well, they always are. You know, they're lightning rod. But, but the, it seemed that what he was saying, I think, is he was commenting not so much on what Mr. Rittenhouse said to the press or what he said in interviews. What I heard was him saying, you can't comment on his prior silence talking to the authorities. That's what I heard. And and you can't, as far as I understand, you're not supposed to do that. So um, it seemed to me that I thought the judge was correct because apparently that's what the judge heard too. Not not the you know the law school one on one impeachment of well you said something else to somebody else, it it seems like uh, he was commenting the prosecutor was commenting on statements not made to the authorities when he was arrested. That's what I got out of that comment. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you know go ahead, Richard. May, may I respond to that, Bruce? Sure, sure. I think the issue is if I walk, if I'm a defendant, if I'm a suspect and I walk into a police station, I say, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. That has nothing to do with the Fifth Amendment. If the police advise me that anything I say can be used against me and then I'm silent, they cannot comment on that silence. But until you're given, until it's shown that you're exercising your Fifth Amendment rights, whether or not you remain silent is irrelevant. And you don't exercise your Fifth Amendment rights when the media interview you. And even with respect to the media, even if Rittenhouse gave voluntary statements to the police, when he gave the voluntary statements, he was not in custody. It was not post-Miranda. It was rather pre-Miranda. And so, again, I say if it's without being advised the Fifth Amendment rights and it's, and it's pre-Miranda, I think the prosecutor was dead on right to be able to impeach him with a prior In this, in this case, I want to You're move saying on. this now. You never said it before. I want to move on to, to I think, a, a bigger, broader issue for those that are watching, you know, on television and maybe have been following this. Um, perhaps Kyle Rittenhouse is not guilty of first-degree, second-degree murder, any, any charge of murder. But the idea that he would get away with nothing or a very minimal charge is it flies in the face of law enforcement which never is very uh, excited about what could be described as vigilantism. And if Kyle Rittenhouse gets away with a slap on the wrist or nothing, what signal is that going to send to future people who are in future situations? What precedent does this set in your view, Richard? I think it's a terrible signal. It's a signal, you don't like what's going on, go out and get your guns and take care of it yourself, which is exactly what Rittenhouse did, exacerbated by apparently the evidence is that it was a straw purchaser who got the gun. What came out last week is it was a friend of his who said, well, I bought the gun because Rittenhouse wasn't old enough to be able to carry it. And yes, I understand Wisconsin is an open carry, but it's not an open carry by a 17-year-old kid who comes there to be a vigilante. And I suppose add to that equation, 
is a week or two earlier, although the judge kept that from the jury. I don't know why, because I think it goes to motive and intent. A week or two earlier, Rittenhouse said, I'm going to get a gun and show, go shoot rioters. That clearly shows he went to Wisconsin with uh, uh, an intent in mind, and I think the jury should have had that opportunity to evaluate that intent as well. Judith, you're focused specifically on the precedent that this would set if he gets away scot-free. Right. Well, first of all, based on, on what I've read about the lesser included charges, uh, particularly if they send them to the jury, I think he's going to get convicted on some lesser included charge. I don't think he's going to get convicted of first degree murder. Um, I don't think he should be convicted of first degree murder. I think it's based on the videos I've seen, and the same videos probably more enhanced that the people in the courtroom have seen, uh, it certainly looks like self-defense to me. Um, the fact that he was there, there are a lot of reasons why he was there. Uh, he was asked to be there. He's definitely going to get convicted of this straw purchase business with a gun. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's that. But that is not the proximate cause of, of the, the killing of these people who were after him. I mean, the only one... But, is the, but is, the, is the reason that the judge brings up the idea of lesser uh, charges and the prosecution brings up the possibility of lesser charges, is it in response to the question that I just asked? And that is, we can't let this guy get away with nothing or it's going to, it's going to be Katie by the door and it's going to encourage a lot of other people in future circumstances, which is a, a major uh, breakdown in, in law and order. I get that. And, and so I would agree with that. But there's two reasons why the prosecutor is doing this. I think he knows his murder one case on all three of them is probably tanked. Okay. So he wants to get something because he wants to get some statement from the state of Wisconsin that says an 18-year-old kid should not be given an AR-15 and sent out in the street to, to defend a car dealership and to put out fires in the middle of a riot. That's mm -hmm. something for the police to do. Whether or not the police were doing it, that's a whole separate question. I don't know if we want to even get into that. But, but they want him to be convicted of something. And, and I just, based on what I've seen and based on what I've heard, I don't think they're going to make their murder one. I think they know they're not going to make the murder one. And that's why they want to try to make sure that the jury has an alternative. Now, you've criticized, as you, you both have, have, have offered uh, at least comments, not direct criticism in Richard's case, of the judge. But what, what grade would you give the prosecutors in this case? Judith, you, you, you rolled your eyes. You're rolling your eyes for those uh, <laughs> listening on radio or watching on radio. <laughs> uh, I mean, if I if this is my trial practice class, yeah. this guy this guy is failing. I mean, you know, I, I Richard, go back to your your early days at law school, or even if you teach it now in some capacity. You know, they always bring in these actors, and you ask them questions, and they always ask give you the wrong answer that just blows your case apart. And and you're trained in law school to try to figure out what to do with that. I mean. This, this the guy we shot in the arm. I mean, you couldn't get a worse answer out of him on the witness stand than the one he gave, and and the prosecutor, which was, which was, oh, um, and when did Mr. and when did you shoot Mr. Rittenhouse or something something like that, uh, or when did when did Mr. Rittenhouse shoot you? you? Yeah, 
when I pointed a gun at him, or I believe he said at his head, okay? Now, if that isn't a reason to shoot somebody, I don't know what is. When we come back, well, I'm going to get Richard's response to that. And also, uh, if you have telephone calls that you'd want to share with us, 1-800-723-8289. Any questions or comments about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It'll be big news again for the next week. It's big news tonight on Beyond the Beltway. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself. I didn't. Now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. A little bit later on in our broadcast, we're going to be joined by Ray Hanania, 
veteran reporter and media critic, and we're going to be talking about the media coverage of uh, the Rittenhouse case. And also, our Rudy Hall will be joining us. He is a veteran of the New York City Police Department over 20 years, and he's going to be talking about the, the battle that's already going on, the verbal battle between the newly elected mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, and the leader of Black Lives Matter, who has uh, threatened uh, the new mayor with uh, perhaps violence in the streets if uh, if he moves forward with an idea to improve uh, uh, policing in that city. So uh, this will be the discussion later on, but we continue uh, with our in-studio guest, Judith Sherwin, and also Richard Kling, who joins us via Zoom. And Richard, let's take a moment where uh, we'll let our guests uh, introduce themselves. Uh, take about 20 seconds and tell everybody about your illustrious uh, past and present. I'm a clinical professor of law at Chicago Kent. I teach forensic sciences, uh, evidence, ethics for lawyers. I've been there 40 years. Uh, I've been practicing for 50 years. I was a Cook County public defender for 10 before I joined law school. Have tried literally over 500 murder cases, 18 of them death penalty cases. Um, and right now I have students going with me on every single case. And so my clients get what I call the dream team because they have me and my students. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Judith Sherwin joins us in the studio. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me on, Bruce. Uh, I am a professor at Loyola University in the law school, an adjunct professor where I teach. Uh, I have taught legal ethics. Right now I'm teaching business ethics um, in the graduate program. I also work with the thesis students. And in the past, I have taught trial practice and appellate law and uh, and writing. So uh, I've had experience on all levels, none in the criminal court. I have never tried a murder case and I hope to never have to do it. So kudos to you, Richard. Richard, are you going to write uh, a book or have you I'll written a book you. about your life? Not about my life. I have a motion manual for Illinois lawyers that is out there uh -huh. and it's the only one in existence. Um, you know, I thought about it. I, I don't have the time. I've been asked to do it. Um, I need about four more hours of your time, by the way, to talk a little bit more about Rittenhouse. I can comment on a couple of things that we haven't mentioned yet. Okay. Uh, well, well, we'll we'll go a little bit further. Let let me also mention then, because I, I I bring uh, the audience uh, who are longtime listeners of this program, which is now over forty two years old. Uh, I have a unique situation tonight. Is that each of my guests thus far, I have known personally for over fifty two years. We go way back to our 20s, uh, and uh, many, many, many years ago, when I thought I could be elected to something, I ran for the Illinois State Senate, and I was, and I lost. But our two guests this evening, who were, they were probably closer politically uh, then than they are might be now. They were both members of my citizens committee, yep. and they both tried to elect me, and. Uh, Hell with the voters, they they threw me out. But uh, 52 years later, I'm I'm dealing with guests who have, have great uh, careers that they've made since we first met. And again, it's a delight to have you both uh, with us this evening. Uh, Richard, I want to go back to you before we take a Bruce, call. May I make a? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say if I can make a couple of observations, I'll sure. go down the participants. Yes. Number one, I agree with Judith. I agree with Judith. I think the prosecutor was much, much, much too soft. I would have loved. To be the examiner on both Rittenhouse and as well as some of the other uh, witnesses. For example, Rittenhouse talked about he was in his community. 
I would have buried him for a half hour on what do you mean your community? When have you been there? Where have you bought things? Do you live there? What members of your family? It's clearly not his community. He came up from another location. So I think in terms of the prosecutor, he may be a wonderful guy. He may be a nice guy. I think he was much too soft. I think in terms of the defendant, uh, I'll tell you from the beginning, he strikes me as an arrogant, condescending, uh, narcissistic individual. Doesn't make him a murderer. He shouldn't have been there, but that's the issue there. In terms of the in terms of the defense lawyers, the case is unusual. There were hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, that were spent on Rittenhouse's defense. This is not some kid who went out and had an assistant public defender or who hired a lawyer for however much. This this defense is unlike most defenses in the country to the extent that it was political forces that came to bear and and, and ended up representing Rittenhouse. And as far as the judge, I think from the beginning, uh, he was he appeared to be biased. I think he appeared to be biased. He was trying to do everything he possibly can to protect Rittenhouse. Now, at the same time, however, um, prosecutors, as I said, can't appeal decisions. Defendants can't. And so the judge has an additional obligation of bending over backwards to make sure that Rittenhouse's rights are protected, because if they're not protected at trial, then that becomes an issue for an appeal. Mm -hmm. uh, the final issue that I just mentioned momentarily, and one of the instructions that they're talking about, is the aggressor instruction. If I start a fight with you, Bruce, you have a right to defend yourself. I can't say, however, wait a second, I started the fight, you were defending yourself, so I had a right to, to then blow your head off. Uh, the aggressor generally cannot rely on self-defense. The person who starts the fight can't come in and say, well, I started it, but I was really trying to stop it. So there's a myriad of issues in this case, unlike most other cases in the country. Judith Sherwin. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's absolutely true. The issue of the aggressor can't, can't say, oh, gee, I was defending myself. But the question here really is whether or not he was the aggressor. And, um, you know, there, there's testimony and there's video to show that his motives in coming there were not to go and shoot anybody. They were to, to try to protect both property and perhaps life. And uh, when he encountered Mr. Rosenbaum, Mr. Rosenbaum was apparently um, trying to set fires to a gas station, which could have been a major catastrophe. And, and so I realized that you can't use um, lethal force to protect property. I think the prosecutors tried to get that across. But the encounter between Rosenbaum and the other gentleman who was there and Rittenhouse that's the that's the one encounter I think that the jury is going to have the hardest time with. Okay, so the issue of whether Rittenhouse was an aggressor, I mean, that's a fact to be determined in the case, and uh, I don't know how the jury is going to see that. One quick question for both of you: um, the uh, relative, a relative, I believe, the uncle of uh, of Jacob Blake, who was the African American who was originally stopped by the police, uh, and uh, from that shooting, yeah. uh, the the disturbances began, and people came there for the reasons that the protesters came there and the reason that Kyle Rittenhouse, or Rittenhouse came there. Um, he has stated publicly that he's taking the names and taking pictures of the jurors. Um, when somebody says something like that, Richard, is there not an obligation by the judge or or law or anybody to to come down and clamp down on that uh, threat to the jurors? Yes, 
And that concerns me. And what also surprises me, especially during the deliberations, but even during the rest of the trial, it's not like this was a six month trial. It was a trial that was a couple of weeks. And I don't understand, given the massive media attention, why the jury was not sequestered. Uh, I realistically, agree. I would have had them away from the media. I would have had them away from threats and any of the other things that are going on. Mm -hmm. You know, the one other crazy issue in this case, if we're talking about crazy issues, mm -hmm. is it's a white kid who killed white people. It's not the typical case where it's a white kid who went out and killed black people. The, the people who were demonstrating were demonstrating because of because there were black people who were killed both here and in Minneapolis. But it's a unique case, again, with race enters into it, but it enters into it through the back door as opposed to the front door. Mm -hmm. Judith? Yeah, well, I, and the most interesting thing about that is is the fact that President Biden, for, well, when he was not President Biden, called him a white supremacist. Uh, there are people who are actually finding out, and I, because uh, I've seen it on Twitter, who are actually finding out this week that Kyle Rittenhouse did not shoot black people they thought he shot black people, and that's why they thought he was being called a white racist, white supremacist, when in fact who he shot were white people, mm -hmm. and they didn't know that. So, I mean, that tells you some of the power of the narrative of the media that has been spun around mm -hmm. this. It's it's uh, it, it's really astonishing. Uh, it, if I could say just one more thing, sure, go first. ahead. Um, one of the things that I found just horrible this week. Um, after the the young man who was shot in the arm when he when he sort of unraveled his own case and said that he he uh, he was shot after he pointed a gun at Kyle Rittenhouse's head goes on CNN is interviewed by Anderson Cooper and on CNN he says oh uh, he he shot me when I had my hands in the air okay you know. In court, you're supposed to be under oath and you're supposed to tell the truth. Or sometimes some people make a mistake and tell the truth, which apparently is what he did. But he went on the air and he said something entirely different. So there are millions of people who did not see the trial and who don't know what he said in court, who think something entirely different happened. And, and that is really, uh, you know, the atmosphere around this trial. I don't know what you can do about it. I don't know how you get back to the kind of uh, reasoned discussion that you and I are having amongst people about justice and the justice system, but we really need to do that because um, the narratives being spun on this stuff is killing us, really is. Let's go to Al listening to us on line one, and he's from Lake Forest, Illinois. I guess, no, he has got tired and he has uh, gone <laughs> elsewhere, uh, but Mike is listening to us in Alhambra, California. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Actually, it's Alberta, but that's okay. Uh, that's okay. Thank you so much. You're coming um, in real loud. I really appreciate Oh, okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate the uh, attorneys back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, I've been a, uh, a K-12 educator for about 30 years, and I've learned a little bit about deception kids, kids don't always tell the truth anyway mike the, i've uh, got to i'm going to interrupt you here for a moment it was my mistake we went to you when we're about to go to a break so stand by we're going to be back to you we're going to give you your full question and we'll give you your full dollars worth of response from our guests i'm bruce dumont thanks for joining us tonight on beyond the beltway Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Heard-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. 
As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Jill, why didn't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, You should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back. We will be joining uh, Mike in just a moment in California who will complete his question. Uh, but, uh, Richard, you said you could you could do four hours on, on things that you want to talk about in this case. Uh, I don't want to ask you on the air if you can do four additional hours, because I can't do four additional hours. Could you do an extra 20 minutes and stick with us until uh, quarter after the hour? I volunteered, so sure. Okay, thank you. And then, by the way, these are not billable hours, but I, but I thank you very much for that. Uh, let's go to Mike, who's got a and question. I, I, I do. Yeah, go ahead. 
I do want to address one. I do want to address one thing quickly that Professor Sherman said. That's based on what Rittenhouse said. Okay. On um, that, is he went up there to defend pro- to defend property. I don't think that's. Any, I, I think that's silly. Uh, and I don't mean Professor Sherwin. I know Rittenhouse said it. You don't have a 17-year-old kid who picks picks up an assault rifle with the extended magazines and I don't know how many bullets in there, knowing that you can't use lethal force to defend property. He went up there because I think he was a hotshot who had a rifle illegally cross state lines to do whatever he wanted to do. He's a wannabe cop, and he ended up being a wannabe cop, killing three people or killing two people. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go back to Mike, who has been standing by in California with a question or comment. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I, I really want to thank you, um, and I appreciate all the inner back and forth here. Um, as a 30-year educator, I've been uh, lied to quite a few thousand times um, by the students, uh, good and bad. Um, but uh, what I'm seeing here, since it was perfectly okay for Portland, Seattle, Chicago, Detroit, Atlanta, Savannah, to have Antifa people rape, murder, loot, uh, burn down businesses, do destruction, hurt the police, etc., 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 and that's all just fine. But... Uh, the city of Kenosha is obviously run by very weak and afraid people who uh, kept the police far, 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 far away from the actual real damage that was going on. So Rittenhouse found himself kind of caught in the middle and all, that it was okay for more Antifa and BLM people to rape, destroy, and damage. And uh, by wild chance, the kid was good enough to protect himself with a weapon that women can use to protect themselves too, but that's okay. We don't. We want more rape and murder, I guess. Um, so I'm saying that Rittenhouse is mostly innocent. Um, and he but was, in, in uh, this in this in this particular in this particular case, Mike, there was no incident, at least that I'm aware of, that anybody that was there as a protester or a, a violent protester, as you might describe them, that, that that they raped anybody or they murdered anybody. They were there. They were upset. Uh, they perhaps were doing things that they should not have been doing, but but protesting is is a right that they had to do. And my question to you, or I'm going to ask this to to Judith and to Richard, uh, to to Mike's point, uh, what does this say about the way in which the Kenosha Police Department were trying to to quell the situation in their in their town? Well, I mean, just looking at it from outside and from what I saw on the videos, it didn't seem like the police were there doing anything. I mean, you know. the fellow who was shot in the arm was there at the protest with a gun. What was he doing at a protest with a gun? He wasn't protecting anything. Why did he come to a protest with a gun? Okay, so that's 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 a good question. The second well, one. Well, no, but he, but he he might be there. His answer might be, I was there to protect myself, and I was there for self-defense if I needed it. But the the whole point. And is he said he was he had a conceal and carry, and he said he was an no. EMT there as well. With a, he had a, a bag in one hand for emergency, and he had a gun in the other. Well, you know, I realistically, that. Well, I don't realistically, know why any of these people were walking around the street with guns. Well, I don't want people walking around the street with guns either. But 
Kyle Rittenhouse was there with a medical kit. He was also interviewed about half an hour before all this started happening, saying that he was there because he had been trained in first aid and he wanted to be there to help out. Um, he he was there I, with with some legitimacy to try to quell what was going on. And as for being a member of the community, his father lives there. So uh, he was not a stranger to he, that community at all. He didn't live there every day. He had no, but it, it, you know. He had no legitimacy whatsoever to be there in my opinion. He again, had no legitimacy I, uh, whatsoever. Again, I could put some bandage in my pocket and say I'm the, trained as a paramedic. Jury, he had an assault rifle, which he illegally got across state lines. And, and it is what it is. We'll see what the jury does. Well, I, I agree with you. We will see what the jury does because the jury is going to decide whether he was there with some bad intent or some folks reasonably. We good have intent. less. We have less than two minutes left. I'm going to start with you, Judith, and, and keep it short, if you will. Sure. Um, look into your crystal ball. What do you think this jury decides uh, whenever they decide it? And then again, the, the closing arguments start tomorrow. And again, uh, it's going to be a big story for the rest of the week. And then we're waiting for, for a verdict. Uh, uh, what do you think the verdict will be? Well, without hearing the closing arguments, okay. um, I, th I think that the verdict will be some lesser included charge. Um, I don't think he's going to get a maximum sentence. Okay. So the closing stretch. arguments can still change your mind. The, well, I'll tell you about the closing argument. If the prosecutor does as bad a job on the closing argument as he has in the trial, uh, the judge is probably going to interrupt him 12 times, and it's going to be awful. So, but Richard, I, I got to get your, just so we get everybody in, your response, uh, your, your projection, Richard. I have no projection. I've walked into cases and lost juries I'm sure I was going to win and have won juries I was sure I was going to lose. That's why you have 12 people sitting in the box, and hopefully they'll make the right decision. Right. One question about the jury. I, I understand there are uh, there are, are eight men and, and 10 women, but only 12. In other words, 12 are going to be pulled out from that 18. Uh, why, why do they do that? Well, Some people just, are there. Uh, well, you've already lost a couple of people. I mean, that's okay. what happens. They don't want if. If you go below 12, I don't okay. know procedure, but you might you might have a, a, a so problem the, trying so the So the exact 12, we don't know yet. As we go off the air tonight, we don't know yet. I think we do know who's in the box. We just okay. don't know if we're going to have to change. We've got to pause. Richard Kling has agreed to stick with us for another uh, segment uh, after the hour. Judith Sherwin will as well, and we'll be joined by Ray Hanania in our next hour of Beyond the Beltway and, a little bit later, Rudolph Hall. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor 
check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces. Just by giving her a bear hug, she masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back with Beyond the Beltway. We continue with hour number two. Judith Sherwin joins me in studio. She's an adjunct professor at Loyola University. Richard Kling is sticking by for another 15 minutes. He is the criminal law professor at Chicago Kent College of Law. We are also joined by Ray Hanania, a veteran reporter and a media critic, and uh, we're going to continue our discussion uh, with Richard Kling. Uh, Richard, uh, one important thing, you, you said there was a number of things that you wanted to talk about, which is why you agreed to spend an extra 15 minutes with us. One thing that I didn't get to in hour number one was probably the most dramatic uh, part of the trial, and that was when the defendant uh, took, uh, took the stand and this is when Kyle Rittenhouse uh, uh, got very, very emotional. Uh, it was played, obviously, not only on the the wall-to-wall coverage, but all the network news coverage uh, carried the fact that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, uh, broke down during his testimony. Um, how effective was that as a as a veteran uh, defense attorney? How effective was that uh, testimony by Kyle Rittenhouse? I mean, realistically, it's always a scary proposition for a defense lawyer to put his or her client on the stand uh, because of things that can happen, things that appear to be uh, misconstrued, etc. I wasn't in the courtroom. Uh, I did, however, see parts of his testimony, and we watched him glance from side to side. Now, whether he was glancing at his lawyers to see how he was doing, I've had clients in the middle of their testimony, or at least witnesses in the middle of their testimony, 
who look over at the other lawyers to see if there's some signal about what they should say. So I don't know. He was also looking at the jury. Obviously, the bottom line is whether the jury is going to believe that he was genuine or not. Uh, and even if he was genuine, even if he was sincere in his tears, uh, one would expect that somebody who was on trial where he may go to the penitentiary for a substantial period of his life is going to be frightened. And it was a tense situation, whether it was a situation of an innocent person who was just breaking down because he was wrongfully convicted. That's something the jury will have to decide. Uh, my question to you, Ray Hanania, you're, you're looking at sort of the media coverage. What was your reaction to that point in the trial? and also the way in which the news media responded to that dramatic moment. Well, I mean, first of all, I think it takes a lot of courage for a uh, defendant to actually take the stand. So I think that plays to his benefit that he wasn't, you know, hiding, you know, anything. A lot of people, you know, the public, again, you have the right not to testify. But when you do testify in your own defense, um, I think the public, when they hear uh, the arguments, that they give them a little more credibility. And, and I think personally, Kyle Rittenhouse um, did a, a good job of explaining, you know, his actions and giving us a perspective that honestly I had never heard before. I'd never heard in the media that he'd been attacked. I'd never heard that the three defendants—I mean, the three victims, two that were killed. Um, and one that was wounded um, had attacked him, had tried to take the gun, had uh, made threats to him. Um, but we heard everything about Rittenhouse. We heard that, you know, this is a kid that wanted the limelight. Um, this is a kid who went out of his way to be on the front lines. They talked about everything about Rittenhouse, but the media said nothing about the three victims. And I'm not saying anybody deserved to die in that confrontation. I think it's sad that two people died. That's terrible. But the hypocrisy, I think, is bigger on the media, that they're playing politics with this. This isn't about Kyle Rittenhouse or Joseph um, Rosenbaum or Anthony Huber, the third person. Um, this is about the media using this to build up their base mm -hmm. of support because they know they're going to get 50% of the public and they want them whipped up emotionally so they can sell newspapers. And I think that's a terrible injustice for this country. Judith Sherwin, your, yeah. your, your response to, uh, to, the, to the testimony first and then to respond to what Ray said. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, it's always a big, scary situation when you take the defendant and put him on the witness stand. Um, most people will tell you not to do that. Uh, I, I read in a couple of places that what they were looking for here was a total acquittal and that if, if they didn't think they could get it without putting him on, they thought he had the, you know, the strength to go through it. Um, I, I didn't see a person looking for approval on what he was doing on the witness stand. I mean, he really seemed to be so out of control he couldn't talk. And, and he was trying to get himself under control, which is why his, his head was moving around. And he was, I mean, he, he was, I thought he was pretty much out of control at that point in terms of mm -hmm. being able to do anything. So, I mean, I, I don't see did, it as did an that, act did, at did, all. Did, did that emotional outburst, do you think that it, it led to the question by the judge uh, several days later about whether or not uh, he w there were some mental issues? Was there a connection between uh, maybe the emotional breakdown and whether or not it's really impacted his mental health? Um, 
I don't think so. I, I think, as, as Richard said before, the judge has an obligation in all of these cases, any case, criminal case, to make sure that the defendant can cooperate, that the defendant is, is, is in, the, in the trial, they know what's going on. Um, I don't think there's really been an issue about whether or not mm -hmm. Kyle Rittenhouse knows what's happening or what his, mm -hmm. what his, his situation is. Uh, and I, I think the fact that he broke down on the witness stand, I mean, he was, he, he looked to me like he was reliving everything that happened that night. Yeah. And, and that, that would be pretty scary. Richard, uh, I'm going to go back to you because you mentioned that uh, there were several other things that you wanted to put on the record tonight. So we've got about three minutes left. So go ahead and well, I wanna, open up. I want to make one observation about his testimony. Um, it's not a situation where the lawyer walked him into the courtroom and said, oh, by the way, go take the stand if you'd like to testify. If the lawyer did what they were supposed to do when they had a massive team of lawyers, they would have spent weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks preparing his testimony. They would have taken him through the direct examination over and over and again. They would have taken him through the cross-examination. So there were no surprises up there. And so realistically, that's why I say it was, and the jury will have to decide that, whether it was a genuine uh, feeling on, on his part or whether or not it was um, a play for sympathy and that's up to the jury to decide. Mm -hmm. I'm, I mean I, I don't know why anybody would assume they didn't do precisely that. I am sure they prepared him for his testimony. I'm sure they prepared him for every conceivable issue that could be raised on cross but but you know it's it's the same old story of, of you know how things are when you're rehearsing as to when you're actually doing it live well you know? are you suggesting if they prepared them do you think that they deliberately prepared him to have that sort no, of no absolutely okay, well. not no they prepared so you him. don't think that happened during the preparation no no probably okay. well i mean he may have been upset during the preparation yeah it's it's different when you're rehearsing in front of your two lawyers who are on your side and you're talking about what's going on mm -hmm. to sitting in a courtroom where where you're trying to talk to 12 people mm. and and convince them that what you did was the right thing richard give us 30 seconds so we got 30 seconds more I, for your input go ahead 30 seconds 30 30 seconds more is if he re, if he spent time with his lawyers preparing he was not spending time just explaining when i spend time with my clients preparing them to testify i am cross-examining them more violent more vigorously than any prosecutor can be expected to cross-examine so this wasn't a surprise where his lawyers just sat down with him in the state of their office and said okay tell us what happened um, i guarantee you that he was spent hours if not weeks with his lawyers rehearsing his testimony richard Kling, we are out we are, stand, we are out of time we will be back with our continued broadcast in just a moment thank you richard no word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. 
probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Ray Hanania, I want to turn to you for uh, this segment primarily to, to talk more about the media aspect of this. Is there anything in this climate, is there anything that you think will change about the way media covers stories like this? Do we have any hope that things are going to get better? No. No, I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. The media is not stupid. Uh, I, you know, I was in the media for years. I know a lot of the reporters are good people. They're yeah. smart people, um, but they have jobs to do, and uh, their policies are directed by their publishers um, and the corporate, the five corporations that own the bulk of the media today. And uh, I think that uh, they see that society is divided politically. There's the people on the far right and the people on the far left, and very few people in the middle. There's a big uh, gap between everybody, and mm-hmm. I think they're pandering. I think the left media panders to the left, attacking the right, and I think that the right media is pandering to the right, attacking the left. Um, instead of getting professional news reporting, what we're getting is opinion in the disguise of being news. Um, I, I think it's appalling. I mean, just this written Rittenhouse case and the killing of uh, these two protesters, I think, is a good example of what's wrong with the media there are mm-hmm. facts that are that are downplayed to promote one side you know the 
the criminal histories of the the two victims um, and the, the three victims, the one that was wounded. Um, nobody ever said anything about that. And yet during the trial and in the media on the left, um, all we heard about was how Rittenberg, you know, went out of his way to go to Kenosha. He inserted himself in there. He was trying to get headlines. So his past a, and everything a, about him made it into the press. But it took forever for us to learn about, you know, Joseph Rosenbaum's problems, all the different problems that he had. Even snoops.com, when you go on there to look to see are these correct, they don't deny it. They just say, oh, this has nothing to do with the protests that right. took place right. in Kenosha. And I'm, and I'm arguing that's not up to the media to tell me what's important. What's important, what the media should be doing is giving me and the public the facts because the public is smart enough to understand but, it. But they're Ray, profiting uh, uh, Ray, from uh, Ray, pride uh, and they're keeping it alive. Ray, a question here, though. Is is the is the background of the three uh, victims in this case, the two that died and the one that was just shot? Does the background of those three is it really germane at all to this case? Yes. Yeah. Tell me why. Absolutely. Absolutely, because yeah. it speaks to were they protesting or were they rioting? Are these people that have a tendency to lean toward crime? Um, you know, these are issues that are being debated and discussed mm -hmm. on the street, but not right. in the media, even in the George Floyd case. Now, I, d I don't want to see George Floyd killed. I think the police officers deserve to be punished. But instead of being punished, they were sentenced to how many years? First-degree murder? It's ridiculous. The guy had a criminal history. He had problems. And yet he's made out to be a saint. I think that's wrong. It influences how the public is responding. They're feeding this bias. In the Rittenhouse case, I think the victims, what they did in the past, you know, portrays them as possibly people who would maybe go beyond what a normal protester should be doing and towards mm -hmm. violence. It justifies Rittenhouse's claim that these guys tried to attack them, that uh, Rosenbaum threatened him twice, you know, said he was going to kill him. It makes it more believable when you see his background. Mm. So uh, the public sanitized one side. Uh, the media sanitized I wanna go, one I wanna, side I wanna bring and exaggerated the other. I want to bring I want to bring Judith in. Uh, Judith, you're nodding your head as well, Ray was speaking. Yeah, I mean, I, Ray is absolutely correct. I mean, the the story put out here is that uh, Rittenhouse is a proud boy. He's a you know he's a he's a bad kid. You know, obviously he had a gun when he shouldn't have had a gun in Wisconsin. All right, that's a that is a criminal offense. Is I'm a sure picture be... is a picture right. with the Proud Boys. Is that germane to this case? Uh, well, I don't know whether it is or it isn't. I don't think it is. The judge clearly didn't think it was, and the judge, the judge. I mean, there was a riot going on. Yes, regular protesters don't set gas stations on fire. They don't pick up their skateboards, as has happened several times, one time prominently in New Orleans, I think it was New Orleans, it was somewhere in the South, one of these peaceful protesters picked up his skateboard and beat a man to death with it, okay? And mm -hmm. that's happened in several instances. And people know about that. So here comes this, this, this Huber with his skateboard, and he's, he's, he's trying to hit um, Rittenhouse in the head with it and take his gun away. 
What's he supposed to do? Is he supposed to say, oh, gee whiz, don't do that? I mean, it, this is this is insanity, okay? How so do we, how do we, how do we, and when I say we, I mean but, myself, who has a, uh, a microphone once a week and, and, a, and a website and everything else, and all the people like me that have similar uh, mouthpieces or opportunities or public platforms uh, to address the public, uh, whether we have a political axe to grind or not, I don't particularly have an axe to grind. I want to get to the truth, the whole truth. I want to know these things earlier in the trial. I also know that we're never going to get instant reaction or instant background on, on these cases because the media wants to go with what, what do we know, what, what, what's new that we can add to this right now. It's not so. My question is: Is there anything, including yourself, including Richard Kling, including mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know uh, Ray, is there anything we could be doing about basically jumping on the next big case that comes along and says, "Wait a minute, time out. Let's not have another Rittenhouse here." Well, let's not and get have, some publicity for Let's it. not have another rush to judgment. Okay, I understand clicks are money. You know, they want clicks. They want people to get on their website. But, you know, if, if the media is whipping up a frenzy over this trial, okay, when Anderson Cooper has, has uh, the, the young man who was shot in the arm. Huber. Huber no, that, no, Huber's no, that's dead. The, that's, no, uh, but Greg, I can't never pronounce his but, last name. But when, when the young man who was shot in the arm goes on CNN uh, and says to the world, he shot me when I had my hands in the air, and that is absolutely not what he said on the witness stand. That is absolutely not what's going on in the court. So if that comes in as a not guilty, and if the other charges come in as a not guilty, you are going to have a repeat of what you had in Kenosha, you know, in 2020. And the media is responsible for that. They've got to stop whipping this up. Ray, do you believe... The media wants that. Okay. I, I, I agree I know, with Judith. It's another the media story. wants that. The media story. wants the reaction. Um, I think she's right about everything that she said. And, you know, you asked, was uh, Rittenhouse's uh, background about being, you know, sympathetic or whatever with the Proud Boys, was it germane? The media made it germane through the whole time since this event took place until now. What they didn't make germane was the balance on the other side. Right. We need news. We need real reporters to report the news and stop taking positions. That's what we're missing. We're not getting that today. And I'm not talking about opinionated people like me or, or you or others. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the news reporters. There are They're no news reporting reporters. The news. There are no news reporters anymore. They all have opinions and they have to thrust them upon you you know, with the six o'clock news or whatever yeah. it is they're doing and their yeah. Twitter accounts. I mean, it's killing it, this it country. It has to be it has to be news reported by people who work for networks who've decided what their political slant is going to be. Right. Well look and, you know, and insofar that's unfortunate. as and insofar that's unfortunate. as the mainstream media, which to me is still you know, channels, you know, or NBC, CBS, and ABC. Right. I would include, I guess, the the uh, the more partisan, uh, you know, websites. But again, in those particular cases, I think they decided long ago. They decided, you know, when Donald Trump got elected, you know, they they want to sell soap. They're trying to sell product. 
They're looking for the maximum number of eyeballs. And if somebody wins an election, they look at those people and they look at the demographics. Right. And many of them don't want the they're, demographics they're, of Donald Trump. They don't want his demographics. Well, but I'll tell you something. You know, I, okay, go, go, ahead, Ray. go ahead, Ray. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Judith. Okay. No, go ahead, Ray. No, I, I'm sorry, Judith. You go ahead. Okay. <laughs> All right. I was just going to say that the media is using different lexicon for different uh, sides of politics. It's a protest when it's on the left. It's a riot when it's on the right. right. It's a... Uh, a justified uh, uh, expression of anger when it's on the left. It's an insurrection when it's on the right. right. You know, I'm not, I am not a, a right-wing conservative. I'm right in the middle. I sympathize with, I, I see some of the right-wing media doing the exact same thing that the left-wing media right. is doing. But the reporting that we're seeing, the majority of the reporting is parsing those words. And they're applying it when it suits a political side. And I think that is unjournalistic. It's unethical. And they're contributing to the violence that's taking place in this country. I agree. And I again, agree uh, the, uh, the, uh, the indictment of uh, Steve Bannon is, is a good example of how media left of center and right of center are responding to, uh, to this story. Uh, give, give, me, give me 10 seconds on the indictment right now. Ray. Ten seconds on the indictment. Listen, I, uh, personally, I, I think if I were him, I would just go ahead and provide whatever information they want because I don't believe in when you really review it that anybody said we're going to throw out the government um, using violence. I, I think this was a protest gone wrong okay. in, on January 7th. Judith, uh, 6th, ten seconds. Maybe two hundred members. Seconds. Of what was the legitimate ten thing? Seconds. Ten you know, seconds. Went wrong. But uh, I got to we got to stop. Uh, just go ahead and give the information. He jumped into your 10 seconds. He did. We'll give it to you after the break. I'm Thank you. I'm sorry, Judith. That's no, okay. Right. okay right. Sure, okay. sure. Ladies first. <laughs> Sexist. <laughs> this is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless, and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? 
Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back. We're going to give Judy Sherwin 10 seconds to respond to the question, and I'll be the countdown. Go ahead. Oh, God. All right. So as far as Steve Bannon is concerned, somebody serves you with a subpoena to talk to the House of Representatives and you don't want to go. You file a lawsuit, and it's called a motion to quash, and you try to stop it that way in the federal court. The other thing is Steve Bannon cannot possibly have executive privilege about something he said on the radio on January 5th. Right. That's what they want to talk to him about. It's completely ridiculous, and it demeans the whole idea of executive privilege, which is a real thing with the president's communications. And people. we'll talk more about that next week as this uh, uh, show continues and as that issue will continue. Joining us now from New York City is Rudy Hall, Rudolph Hall. He is for over 20 years was a uh, officer with the New York Police Department and uh, he was a guest on this program several months ago because he's very involved in uh, police reform efforts around the United States and we invited him to join uh, uh, our other guests this evening. Uh, uh, Ray Hanania and Judith in studio, uh, to bring us the, the New York perspective about what's happening in New York City and uh, two things. The crime wave in New York City, that's one thing we want to get Rudy's response to. Two, the new mayor, Eric Adams, a former police officer. And number three, uh, the debate that's already going on with the leader of Black Lives Matter, who is challenging the new African-American mayor of New York, who wants to uh, reimpose plainclothes police units to stop crime, and the leader of BLM thinks that is a racist move, and he has threatened a potential violence in New York City if uh, Eric Adams proceeds with that. So that's the setup. There's about five or six questions in there, Rudy. But let me begin by asking the question about uh, violence in New York City it's getting a lot more coverage on national exposure, national media. How bad is it at the moment? Uh, compare it with the previous uh, influx of crime in the Big Apple. Well, good evening, and uh, thank you for having me. I'm good. happy to be able to join you again. Good. Uh, and welcome uh, to your guests. Um, it, it, it is, listen, this is a serious issue. 
Um, we have seen an increase in violence across the city, as well as other cities across the United States. This is not just a New York City problem. Um, I think there's a wide host of factors that played into the increased violence. Um, we're seeing a lot of violence among young people. I mean, 13, 14, 15 year, year olds who are often involved in gangs. One of the unique challenges for police agencies in New York City and beyond is the changing dynamics of gang activity, which drives a lot of the violence. In years past, there was more of an organization where there was someone at the top and then they had lieutenants underneath them and they kind of controlled the organization in a sense, where now you're starting to see more groups of young people who form a gang because they grew up on the same street and there's really no order to their behavior. There's really no um, rules that guide uh, what they will and won't do, right? And we're dealing with young people who are often not mm -hmm. mature enough to make intelligent decisions. And those decisions are leading to significant consequences with uh, oftentimes young people who are not even part of the conflict who are being injured and in some cases killed. Mm -hmm. And uh, point two, tell us more about uh, the new mayor-elect, Eric Adams. Uh, you're a longtime police officer. He was a longtime police officer. Did you guys ever cross paths? And what's your opinion of the new mayor-elect of New York City? Right, so um, Mayor-elect Adams, he was, I believe, a lieutenant when I started out in my career. So we crossed paths briefly. I've never had the opportunity to work directly with him. Um, I think there's optimism that uh, he will bring, if I'll say from the police perspective, there's some optimism that mm -hmm. he will uh, bring an understanding of what's needed in law enforcement to address some of the violence. I think he has an extremely difficult job because he made a comment the other day in the news that I'm not the Messiah, but I am the mayor of New York City, which is true. He, he's not going to come in and solve all the problems of, of the city and every community because he has a wide host of issues that he has to address from his position. Yeah. But um, I think there is some optimism that his administration can make some significant changes and improve the conditions and the quality of life in New York City. What is the controversy about the plain closed a crime unit and 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 why was it closed down and why does he want to bring it back right so the, the unit that we're referring to is called anti-crime um anti-crime and street crime units have been part of the police department going back to the early 70s uh, under the lindsay mayoral administration and these are officers who work in plain clothes just just to clarify for your audience oftentimes i hear people say well they're undercovers. These are not undercover officers. These are officers who identify themselves as police officers, unlike an undercover detective would. Mm -hmm. But they wear plain clothes doing proactive enforcement. The majority of a uniform patrol force is reactive, meaning that someone gets robbed, someone's assaulted, they call 911, mm -hmm. uniform police officers show up and take a report and hopefully try to find the suspect. Mm -hmm. uh, your proactive units are actively engaging with suspects before they commit that crime or right after they committed that crime, which makes the, the work that they do extremely dangerous and high risk. Um, in New York City, let me, before I say my next comment, I'm clear of one other thing. I often hear people say a stop question and frisk is outlawed. It's not allowed anymore. That is not true. Stop question and frisk is based on 
a United States Supreme Court from 1968, Supreme case, excuse me, from 1968, Terry v. Ohio. That case set a precedent for what police officers can do at less than probable cause. Meaning if I have reasonable suspicion, you're about to commit a crime, you're in the process of committing a crime, or you just committed a crime, I can stop you and temporarily detain you possibly frisk you depending on the circumstances mm-hmm. now moving that forward to new york city let me ask one let me ask one follow-up uh, let me ask one mm-hmm. one follow-up question Rudolph. does the term tack unit is is which is a term that is used in police departments around the united states i believe including in chicago is is the tack unit just a different name for uh the plainclothes officers who are actively and aggressively uh pursuing uh crime before it happens and after it happens is it just just a different name every agency i'm sorry is it just a different name for for what the unit does so i'm hesitant to say that it's the same in every agency because Mm -hmm. some 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 uh, departments have gang units which do similar work um they may call it attack unit um new york city we call it Mm anti-crime or street crime units okay um in, in theory, they are doing the same type of work, right? The name may change depending on the police department, mm-hmm. but most of your larger departments will have some type of proactive enforcement. Okay. And tell us uh, about why many in New York, at least in the African-American community associated with Black Lives Matter, why are they so upset that this unit might come back? Is it the aggressive police nature of them, or does this unit have a, a bad track record insofar as police community relations in the black communities of New York? All right, so the, the track record for these units has been uh, one of, it's multifaceted, because they've done some outstanding work removing illegal firearms off the streets of New York City, which in essence have saved thousands if not millions of lives whether it's the life of someone who could have become a victim or a young person who may have shot someone and ended up going to jail for the rest of their life mm-hmm. those lives are saved and that's that's a reality unfortunately it's not a quantitative number that we can point to right if i if you're uh, a criminal and you don't carry your gun because you think you may get stopped by the police and frisked so you say i'm going to leave my gun at home well you didn't get arrested, which is, has a positive impact in your life, and you didn't shoot and kill someone, which saved another life. Those are, those are real um, byproducts from the work that these units did. The problem was the NYPD, and I suspect many other agencies, failed to properly train these officers before putting them out on the street. And I will tell you, for over half of my career, about 12 years, I was involved in doing proactive policing, whether it was as a police officer or the detective bureau or, or as a supervisor, as a sergeant. And oftentimes you would have young officers who are energetic, you know, want to fight crime, and they are they're identified by a supervisor or someone within the command structure who says, hey, this guy is a good cop. Let's put him in anti-crime. And there was no formalized training. So this young officer who may have two or three years <clears throat> on the job, who was working in patrol in uniform yesterday, today he's working in plain clothes. We hope that he ends up on a team with a supervisor who has experience as well as uh, fellow partners who have Mm -hmm. a lot of experience that he or she can learn from. 
But in a lot of cases, they're on a team with other officers who have the same amount of time that they do. And we're putting them out into the street and doing high risk work, right? So it's easy to respond to a call and, and have a complaint and say, I was just robbed. The guy across the street, the red shirt, he's the one that robbed me. Well, now you can go grab that person and arrest them. It's much harder to explain, well, why did you stop this person who was walking down the street who hadn't committed a crime? Why did you stop them? Why did you frisk them? How did you recover this gun from them? And we did not prepare these officers to do that kind of work. And it's within the culture of the police department, it was a notion of, well, we got a gun off the street. But we never talked about, did we actually get a conviction? Right. Rudolph, let me jury? let me ask one follow up question. Just, I, I, I have heard from many interviews that I've done with veteran police officers you know, over the last 30 years. They have described the 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 activity of the TAC officer who were you're they're, they're the young gung ho just out of the out of the academy. And what I've heard is that when they go into a high crime area and, and that gets identified and, and moved from from week to week. They go in and they shake everything up. You know, they, they bust butt and turn over tables and they they really make a, you know, they make a stink. And then they leave. And it's left to other cops to try to clean up their mess. I want to get your reaction to that when we come back. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest service and the ad council we all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us to someone going through a difficult time a text a call or a visit can mean so much reach out to the veterans in your life today let them know they're not alone one simple act can make all the difference that's the power of one if you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm uh, coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces. 
just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back, and a question to Rudy. Uh, before the break, Rudy, I asked a question based on information that I received, you know, over the last, you know, decades from police officers I know, that this this aggressive unit, uh, you know, when they go into a neighborhood, they shake things up, they perhaps, maybe they stop crime, but they certainly shake up and they, they disrupt the relationship between the police and the community. And then they move on to someplace else, and they've left this residual of resentment. Is there any truth to that scenario? The, the, uh, whoever your source is is absolutely correct. Okay. There's a lot of truth to that. Um, right. One, one back to my my, my point. I made uh, last segment. The the officers that are often put into these units are young, you know, aggressive, and um, looking to fight crime. Yeah. When you get older, you, you learn more of a that balance of communication, right? How to how to talk mm-hmm. to people, how to let them vent a little bit before you have to take some kind of police action. Uh-huh. Um, with officers in some of these units, and like, especially if you're in plain clothes, and you stop someone, and this is one of the complaints of the African American uh, and Latino communities in New York City. You know, I'm walking down the street, uh, three guys jump out of an unmarked car, grab me, put their hands on me. Don't explain why they stopped me. I didn't have a weapon on me. And they put their hands on, on my body, frisk me, and jump back in the car and drive off. There's no late, no uh, name tag on their clothing that mm-hmm. identifies who they are. They may have had a shield around their neck, but you can't even see the shield number. And jump in the car and they drive off. And now, as a citizen, you feel victimized. So this is this it drives the complaints of people in the community who are worried about mm-hmm. anti-crime teams being brought back into the fight against crime in New York City. And okay. it's a relevant and realistic complaint because it did happen. And I was uh, I saw it firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the problem is, which I was listening to you as part of the program early before I jumped in. I think Ray had talked about this with the media, right? With, and the left and the right. Mm-hmm. And we lost a balance in the center. Um, we can still do proactive enforcement, but let's make sure our officers are actually trained to do the enforcement as opposed to just picking people because someone made a lot of arrests. If you made a lot of arrests, how many of those arrests actually led to convictions, right? If, if 75% was declined to prosecute, then maybe you're not doing a good job, mm-hmm. right? And holding people accountable. When an officer does something wrong, hold that officer accountable as opposed to saying, we have to get rid of the entire unit. Mm-hmm. So I think if we, if Mayor Adams can find that balance along with whoever uh, the police commissioner will be, I think that'll go a long way to fighting crime and restoring some of the trust back in the police department by members of the community as well. Ray, did you have a follow-up to that? Yeah, well, first I want to uh, well, say hi to Dr. Uh, Hall and urge him 
uh, to please tell uh, Mayor-elect Adams not to reach out to the mayor of Chicago to ask for advice, okay, <laughs> on how to fight crime. But you do not want what's happening here, which is far worse than New York. Right. Um, all I'd like to say is that I think it's the intent. Um, I remember I had served during the Vietnam War. As soon as I got out, I started publishing an Arab-American newspaper for two years after that, even though I had a security clearance. The FBI investigated me, wasted a million dollars because they s believed that I was somehow involved in terrorism. Well, I welcomed the, I would have welcomed that investigation because the end of the report, 40 pages said, Ray Hanania is a, a person who's concerned about his community, wants to do good for the community, but please don't talk to him because he's a reporter, he might write about this. I wish they had made that public. The problem is what they do with the information. They went to people and said I was a terrorist. They went to people to prevent me from getting jobs. They went, it's how the police use information that becomes the problem, not the fact that they're investigating crime. Uh, go ahead, stop and frisk people if you suspect that they have a gun or they're involved in something, but don't use that to you know, push some kind of agenda to make someone look bad. I think that's where the problem starts. I support the police 100%, and while I didn't like being investigated, I wish they would have made it public. It would have made me look far better than I, I was mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. Judith, your, your comment to what uh, Rudolph was talking about. Right. Um, yes, good More evening, right. Rudy. Um, thanks for your, your insights into what's going on. I mean, we've had similar problems here with the gangs because uh, the city thought in its infinite wisdom, and this is even pre our current mayor, that if they cut off the head of the of the gangs, uh, everything would be fine and they would all just melt away into the night. And in fact, it's just spawned a gang, a gang for every block. Mm. Uh, the question I would have though, so these officers, you know, we have a situation now where every policeman, uniformed policeman is wearing body cams. Um, there's no I assume equivalent situation for these plain clothes officers. Um, Is that right, Rudy? They don't wear uh, they don't wear body cam, or do no, they? No. So in New York City, they actually do wear body cams. Oh. Actually, my okay. dissertation topic was on the effect of body cameras on these uh, specialized plain clothes police officers. Oh, okay. and uh, what, did sure what did your what did what did your dissertation show? What? what did it prove? So identify that there was a hesitancy. Initially, there was a hesitancy amongst officers who worked in these anti-communists to wear body cameras. Right. Um, one of the one of the major concerns was the they, there's a lot of this policing. You have discretion, right? Outside of certain limited circumstances, you have discretion when to make an arrest and when not to. Um, one of the concerns was they're out looking for people committing serious crimes, like these felonies and felony crimes. You know, shootings, carrying guns, uh, selling you know major drugs. Uh, one of the concerns. They had world well if i stop someone who's smoking weed and this is before weed was decrim was uh, legalized in new york state if i smoke someone who's smoking weed which at the time was a misdemeanor crime and it's a kid who's 17 i don't want to arrest them so ordinarily i would tell them all right you got no weapons on you you can, you can get out of here well now if i let him go and something else he gets involved in something else whether he's a victim or he's a perpetrator am i in trouble now because on camera i didn't arrest this person when i mm -hmm. technically could have and maybe should have, but I did. Mm -hmm. So that discretion they were worried about. They also were concerned about the um, subjective view, right? So if I'm a supervisor watching your body camera and I see you stop someone and you frisk them, you may have saw something that the camera didn't capture. 
but now I'm just watching your video and I'm making um, a decision or, or interpreting your behavior, which I may be incorrect, right? Because I'm just looking at a video. Rudy, we um, I do I do have I do have I do have to pause. Uh, we are out of time for the broadcast. Rudy Hall, a veteran New York City police officer, joining us with his perspective. Thanks very much, Rudy. Judith Sherwin, thank you very much. And also Ray Hanania, thank you very much for joining us as well. This program is produced by Jenny B. Production. Fritz Goldman has been running the board tonight. Fritz, nice to have you. English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, You should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org.